I want to begin this morning with a question. I know we're several weeks removed from Christmas and New Year's, but how many of you this year experienced a post-Christmas, post-New Year's funk? Anybody? Anybody go through that? You know what I'm talking about? Oftentimes we experience that, right? Right after New Year's, we start back to, to, to work or to school, and that first week in January is just difficult, right? We've just been, we've been going and, and going throughout the holidays, visiting family, going on vacation. Maybe you've been hosting people at your home, and you arrive home, or you're, those in your home, they leave, and you're more tired than when you began, Right? Then you have to return back to to work and school for another long stretch before the next vacation time, whether that be spring break or even summer, and and you're just in a funk. You're You're just dragging. You're in a lull. You ever experienced that? Maybe some of y'all are still there. Y'all still there? Hopefully not. Well, like it or not, oftentimes this happens to us spiritually as well. How many of you have gone through a dry season spiritually. You know what I'm talking about? You're in a lull. Don't feel like reading your Bible. Don't feel like praying and going to church. That desire you had for God and and serving others has, has died down a bit. Anybody been there? Be honest. Yeah. You ever been camping and you're around a fire and you're adding wood to the fire and you're stoking it and it gets brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter and then late into the night it begins to die down and you wake up the next morning and all that's remaining is this smoky smoldering pile of ash sometimes if we're honest our faith can feel that way can it go through a dry season a spiritual law I think of We're all honest, we've been there, right? Maybe some of you are feeling that way this morning. You're in a dry season. Maybe you're even beginning to drift a bit spiritually. Well, if I'm describing you, listen, it's good you're here this morning. I would encourage you to stick with us because for the spring and into the summer, maybe fall, I don't know how long it's going to take me. Don't judge me. We're going to be studying through a book written to people who are where you are. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're starting a new sermon series today through this book entitled, Jesus is Greater. The book of Hebrews. If you're not sure where Hebrews is, don't worry. Just turn to the back of your Bibles and begin flipping forward, and you'll get there pretty quickly, okay? It's right after the uh, Pauline epistles, right after the book of Philemon, before the book of James. Sandwiched in between those, you'll find the book of Hebrews. Now, as many of you know who have been with us for some time, you know that when I start a book, I like to begin first by giving a brief background of the book we're reading, which will really help us moving forward. So I want to do that this morning in Hebrews. Let's talk a bit about the background of this book. First, who wrote it? Well, we don't know. We don't know who wrote it. The author doesn't name himself. Some in the past have argued that Paul wrote it, but stylistically, and for other reasons we'll talk about later on, it doesn't match Paul. Stylistically, it doesn't match Paul. The Greek in the book of Hebrews is considered some of the most excellent and polished Greek in the New Testament. Paul's Greek was a little wordier, 
It was not as polished grammatically. Now, that doesn't make any of his books any less inspired, right? All of Scripture is God-breathed, but men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is written by men who were carried along by God. So their personalities... Their education levels, their styles of writing shine through and contrast each other. But every bit of the content found in your Bibles and in mine, they're breathed out by God. These are God's words to us through men. Hebrews matches up better. The Greek in Hebrews matches up better with that of Luke's writings in the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Both look Uh, Similar, They're written in excellent Greek, so some argue that Luke wrote it. The problem with that is that Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience, and it has a lot of Jewish elements to it. Luke was the only Gentile writer in the Bible, so it doesn't really make sense that Luke wrote it. For that reason, some argue that it might have been Barnabas or Apollos who wrote the book. Barnabas, y'all remember in the book of Acts? He was an early companion of Paul's. He was a Levite, which meant that he would have been well-versed in the Jewish sacrificial system, discussed a lot in the book of Hebrews. Some argue for Apollos being the author. You remember him in our study through the book of Acts. Many of you do. He was a Jew from Alexandria, and there are some beliefs discussed in the book of Hebrews that some believe originated in that area, in Alexandria. We're also told that Apollos was eloquent in speech. He was a gifted speaker. We're told that in Acts chapter 18, which many believe that might have translated into his writing, making him a gifted writer as well. Truth is, we don't know nor will we this side of heaven, okay? That'll be one of the questions we'll have to wait to to have answered. The audience are Jewish Christians. This book was written to Jewish Christians. Now, some argue with the fact that Hebrews was written to Christians, but we have strong evidence to support this from the book. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the author refers to his audience as holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. He speaks of those who have faith in Hebrews 10.39, and he calls them sons of God. This book is written to believers, and in this book, we're given warnings about the dangers of drifting from the faith, which I believe they pay attention to because they are believers. I believe the the recipients of Paul's letter, they heed Paul's advice because one thing we know to be true about believers, about God's people is they endure, they persevere. We're also going to learn that this book applies well, though it's written to believers, it applies well to those inquiring about Christianity. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're here, maybe you've been here for some time, and you're just checking this Christianity thing out. And maybe you've been here for a while, and you're starting to question, well, maybe there's more to it than what they have here in this book. Maybe there's more to it than that. Listen, if that's you, it's good that you're here. And I would encourage you to stick with us because we're going to make a lot of application for you from this book as well. The date of the book. Many date this book around the mid-60s 
A.D. We know it was written after the time of Christ, which is in the 30s, and before the time of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 because the author speaks of the Jewish sacrificial system as if it's still in place, which it wouldn't be after the destruction of the temple. So between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, many conservative evangelical scholars give it a date of around the mid-60s. One of the reasons why is because toward the end of the book, there is mention of Timothy being released from prison, which many believe happened after Paul's death, and Paul died in 63 or 64. So many argue for mid-60s, 65-66. The reason for writing, the reason the author writes Hebrews is to show that Christ and the Christian faith is better. The key word in this book is better. The the writer is writing to Jewish Christians who are becoming complacent, who are dry spiritually, and he makes mention of some who, because of complacency, maybe due to the influence of other popular teachings as well, and possibly persecution that was taking place at this time, were probably considering re-embracing some of the old practices of the Jewish faith that they were raised on. There were others also considering probably if there was something missing with Christianity. They were considering checking out other belief systems along with the Christian faith and maybe kind of bringing those in as well, which is the reason for the warning passages that are given all throughout the book of Hebrews. Also in this book, the author is, is, is making the point, get this, because people were there, he makes the point in this book, get this, There is nothing missing if we have Jesus. Jesus is greater than any and everything else. If you have him, you have everything you could possibly need, right? He is supreme over all things. All other religious leaders pale in comparison to him. The writer of Hebrews is going to make that point. The Jewish faith is incomplete without Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is going to make that point. All other beliefs are false, and they fail to measure up to the Christian faith. The writer of Hebrews is going to make that point. So my hope for you today is if you're here and you're feeling apathetic spiritually, if you're, if you're here and you're in a dry season spiritually, your relationship with the Lord and your hunger for His Word and your desire for Him to serve Him has died down maybe to a cold, smoky, smoldering pile of ash. If your fire has died down, my prayer for you is that God would use this book, the book of Hebrews, to fan your flame. That God would use this book to ignite that fire in you once again in your passion for the Lord and for spending time with Him in prayer and in His Word and you would be renewed. And I also pray that God would give you a desire once again to love and serve Him by loving and serving others. And if you're here this morning, you're just inquiring about Christianity My prayer for you is that you would stick with us through this study and that you would see through this study that Christ and the Christian faith is supreme and that you would trust in Christ alone 
for your salvation. That's my hope and prayer for you. Today we're going to begin by looking at Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. And in this passage, the writer skips all the greetings you normally find in a Pauline letter. So again, stylistically, not like Paul. And he jumps into talking about why we should not move beyond the Christian faith. And the reason why is because the God of the Christian faith, the one true and living God of the scriptures, is a speaking God. Our God speaks. Like Francis Schaeffer once said, our God is there and he is not silent. Our God speaks, and the author of Hebrews goes on to explain the links God has gone through to communicate to us so that we could know him. And he's going to do three things here in these first three verses. He is going to first talk about the great ways God has revealed truths about who he is and how he's at work in the world in the past by his prophets. He's going to show that. Then he's going to talk about how in these last days, in more recent times, how God has revealed himself to us in a superior way through his son. And then he's going to explain why Jesus provides greater revelation. And he's going to give us a list of reasons why. Okay? So your, your title, Jesus Provides greater revelation we've talked about that and i've already given you the outline but don't go anywhere yet we got to flesh this thing out all right notice the first thing the author does is he tells his audience that god spoke to his people in the past by his prophets god spoke to his people in the past by his prophets look at verse one he says long ago And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's stop there for just a minute. Notice a very important phrase in verse 1, the phrase, God spoke. Have you ever been asked, how do you know God exists? How can we know anything about him? I used to ask those kind of questions before coming to saving faith in Jesus while I was in college. Here we have the answer right here. How can we know God exists? How can we know what he is like? Not just through creation, scripture tells us that, but through revelation. Our God speaks. Our God is a speaking God. We're reminded here that our God is personal. He wants us to know him. He wants to live in relationship with us. And the reason why is because he speaks to us and not just today not just at one time in history but all throughout history the author says long ago God spoke how often did he speak just once no at many times in many ways boy we know that to be true we know the old testament God begins by speaking. He spoke creation into existence. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He continued to speak to his people in many different ways. He spoke to Job out of a whirlwind, Joseph through dreams, Moses in a burning bush, Joshua through an angel, Samuel through a voice in the night, Elijah through a still small voice, Daniel in a vision. He spoke through the written word. He had his word written down and read to later audiences many times in many ways. He says, God spoke to our fathers. Whose fathers? Well, the Jewish fathers, right? 
Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. So he tells them that God has spoken to their Jewish ancestors by prophets. We, we learn here, and we learn throughout the Old Testament, that though God communicated to his people in a variety of ways, through burning bushes and dreams, angels, through his written word, he has also spoken through people, through his prophets. We have an entire section in the Old Testament called the prophet section in our English Bibles. We got a major prophet section, that's the bigger prophetic books, and we got the minor prophet section, the smaller books. There were tons of prophets who spoke God's word at different times in different places to his people and to his enemies. Now we need to stop here for just a minute and ask this question, why did God speak through so many different prophets at many times and in many ways? Why did he need to speak over and over again? Obviously, there was a need for him to continue to speak, right? Because he does. Well, one of the reasons is so that future generations would continue to know him and trust in him and follow him. Sure, a lot of you in here know who your dad and mom are, right? Maybe grandparents, maybe great-grandparents. But what about great-great-grandparents? What about great-great-great-grandparents? What about great-great-great-great-grandparents? You may have a, a historian in the family who tracks things about your family and have told you certain things, but did you know them personally? You didn't know them by name. You know their hopes, you know their dreams, you know their accomplishments. You know why? Because you're so far removed from the time in which they lived. God did not allow that to happen. He had his people write things down in his word, and he continues to come and reveal himself and work in the lives of his people throughout the Old Testament. And he continues to call for and work through and speak through his prophets. And he tells his people to share about him so that his people for generations would know him. And something else we learn as we study through the scriptures is that God continues to appear and reveal more about who he is. So that's the second reason he wants to reveal more about who he is. With each appearance, God reveals more and more about himself. This is what is called progressive revelation. God's revelation is progressive. What that means is, as we continue to read, we learn more and more about who God is, right? As we go along. Things get more clear. The pool, the pool of, of knowledge grows the more we read. When we get to the prophets section of Scripture, God's people have, have more knowledge of who God is. And, and the prophets came and brought to the table even more when it comes to who God is and how he is at work in the world. So get this. In the Old Testament, the prophets provided the latest and greatest revelation about God. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But I want to end this point by making the point once again, the point I believe the author of Hebrews is making here, is that our, our God is a speaking God. Always has been. When I was in school, we would play this minefield game. It was a trust-building exercise where you had one who could see and one who had been blindfolded, and the one who could see would, would guide the blindfolded student through a maze of chairs. And he couldn't touch him, but he could tell him, you know, don't go left, 
go right, go straight, you're almost there, so that the person blindfolded would not be wandering around aimlessly in the dark, not knowing which way to go. Believers, in a similar way, God is speaking to us in this way. If left alone, we would be walking aimlessly through this fallen, sin-stained world. Thankfully, our God is a speaking God. The God who has created all that is speaks to us and tells us in his word what he is like, how we can know him, how we can live in relationship with him, and how we can navigate through this world with him. Tells us through his word who he is, who we are, what's wrong with the world, how that which is broken can be made right so we don't have to walk around blindly and aimlessly through this fallen, sin-stained world in a helpless and hopeless state. Our God speaks to us so that we can know Him and live securely in Him. So that's point number one. God spoke to His people in the past by His prophets. Here's point number two and the main point of this passage of Scripture. Look at it. God spoke to his people in these last days through his son. Look at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The word but is an important word here. It indicates that the author of Hebrews is making a distinction between what he is saying and what he has just said. Remember in verse 1, the author says God has spoken to us through his prophets. In verse 2, he says God has spoken to us by his Son. Now, first notice what these two verses have in common. They have the same subject, God, right? And the same verb, to speak or spoke or has spoken. But the difference between verse 1 and verse 2 is the means through which God has spoken. In verse 1, God spoke through prophets. But, the author says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And he says that to make the point that in these last days, God has given us greater revelation. The greatest revelation in his Son. So notice here, the, the author is making the point Jesus is more than a prophet, right? Now, some argue that Jesus is nothing more than a prophet. He's a gifted teacher, another prophet, like the prophets of old, not according to Hebrews. There is a distinction that's made. It would not make sense if he said in the past, God has spoken to us through prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us through a prophet. No, he's showing Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the son of God. He's making the point that Jesus is God's greatest revelation to us. He's making the point that God has given us his greatest revelation through his son, Jesus. Now, how is Jesus our greatest revelation? Well, before explaining that, let me see if I can illustrate it for you, okay? Go back to the minefield illustration, okay? Let's say you're playing that game and you're, you're walking through the minefield, you have someone speaking to you, go right, don't go left, go straight ahead. Then imagine the coordinator of the game comes over and takes off your blindfold. That'd make your view even better, wouldn't it? Because you'd see the minefields instead of just hearing about where they are in a similar way. That's what we have with the person of Jesus. We have the blindfolds taken off. 
Jesus is the full and entire revelation of God. Now, it's not that the message we had with our blindfolds on was wrong. The words of the prophets that they were speaking were true and right words. But when God sent his son to his people, what people had with Jesus is the blindfolds removed. He came to reveal so much more about who God is and what he's done. Making all the past truths said about God even more clear. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish God would give me some fresh revelation I wish he would speak to me like he spoke to to Moses and, and, and others in a direct way like that. I wish he would speak to me audibly and clearly and tell me what he wants from me. I wish he would let me in a little more into what his plan is for me. I wish he had greater revelation than I already have. Listen, if that's the way you're thinking, the message in this passage for you is God has clearly revealed himself to you and his plan for your life through his word and through his son. He's gone to great lengths in his word to to make known to you who he is and and all that he's accomplished. And, And he has given you his greatest revelation through the person of Jesus. We have God's greatest revelation, folks, in Jesus. When you come to know Jesus, get this. You see Scripture in a whole new way, don't you? You begin to see all of Scripture points to Him. You begin to understand how all of Scripture applies to you because you belong to Him. When you fail to see Jesus as you should and don't value, uh, when, when you don't value Him as you should and don't see Him as being supreme, you don't value God's Word as you should, you don't study His Word as you should, you become complacent. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Know that Jesus is supreme. He is God's greatest revelation. And then he goes on to explain why. Why? Why is Jesus God's greatest revelation? Let's look at it. Number one, because he is the king of kings. Look at verse two again. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is God's greatest revelation because, get this, he is our greatest authority. He has all authority. God has given it to him. Jesus said that in Matthew 28, did he not? All authority has been given to me. For the final word on something, we often look to whoever is the final authority, don't we? It's this way in our home with our girls. If I tell Ava to tell Edie it's time for bed, oftentimes Edie will come to me to make sure that's what I said, right? She appeals to the final authority in the house. That's what we have in Jesus He is the heir of all things. He is the final word. God has given him the name above all names. No need to go anywhere else. No need to consult anyone else. That was the problem with the Hebrews. The the Jewish Christians were considering whether or not they were missing something and they were drifting from the Christian faith a bit and re-embracing other authorities. The author of Hebrews is making the point that's a step in the wrong direction because Jesus is supreme. He's supreme. He's the one the prophets pointed toward, right? 
There's no need to go any further. No need to look anywhere else. Jesus is the final authority. He is the greatest revelation. He is the one who sheds light on all that was said about God and done by God in the Old Testament. He is the first and the last. The heir of all things. The king of God's kingdom. The Lord of his kingdom people. The king of kings and Lord of lords. Lord most high. God's greatest revelation. That's Jesus. Notice another reason given for why Jesus is God's greatest revelation. Number two, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Look at the end of verse two, middle of verse three. Through whom also he created the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus he's talking about. He is creator. That is the ultimate trump card, is it not? Why is Jesus better? Creator. He's creator. Why is he God's greatest revelation? He created the world. He is the eternal creator of everything. I would say his perspective is better than the prophets for that reason alone, wouldn't you? The only reason the prophets knew anything about anything is because God told them. Jesus was there in the beginning. And get this, he was not just a passive observer. He created the world. Not only that, he's the one who's holding everything in place. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That verse will make your head hurt. He not only created all that is, he's keeping everything, every little thing in place. Now, where else or who else are you going to turn to with a resume like that? Right? You going through a difficult time right now? You're in a dark and difficult season of your life don't know where to turn what to do listen jesus wants you to turn to and look to and trust in and follow him he is the creator of everything and he holds everything together by the word of his power there is nothing too difficult for him no problems too big for him to handle he is the creator and sustainer he is supreme Another reason why Jesus is God's greatest revelation is because he is God. He's God. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The reason Jesus is greater than the prophets, the reason he is God's greatest revelation is because he is God. He is divine. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is divine, God incarnate. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as we read earlier, that, that Paul writes in Colossians 1.15. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying when you see the Son, when you see Jesus, you're seeing God himself. I'm reminded of when Philip dialogues with Jesus. You remember that? And he says, show us the Father. Do you remember how, how Jesus responded to that statement? He said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So get this, what we learn from Hebrews 1 and what we get from this exchange between Jesus and Philip is that Jesus is God's greatest revelation. The reason why is because when we get Jesus, get this, we're not just getting revelation from God, we're getting God himself. Notice also, he's our redeemer. That's the last reason given here for why Jesus 
is God's greatest revelation because he is our redeemer. Look at the middle and end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Said earlier in the past, God spoke through prophets to his people, right? And something you learn pretty quickly as you read through the prophet section of Scripture is they all have a similar calling that God placed on their lives. They have all been called by God to go and speak to God's people and at times his enemies about their sinfulness and about God's coming wrath and about their need to repent and be redeemed. Jesus came to do that as well, but he came to do more than just that. You see, through the prophets in the Old Testament, though they spoke a lot about and wrote a lot about sin, they could not do anything about the sin in their lives and in other people's lives and in their world. They could not atone for people's sins. Jesus is greater because not only did he come to shine light on our sinfulness and our need for salvation, he came to make a way for us to be forgiven of sin and made right with God. The writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus made purification for our sins. He accomplished our salvation, then returned to the Father and sat down at his right hand on high. Again, the prophets couldn't do this. Now, true, they did have priests in that day who could offer sacrifices in the temple, but we're going to learn in Hebrews that the blood of animals was never sufficient to purify sin. The truth is, these sacrifices were just offered by these priests in faith, looking forward to the future perfect sacrifice that God would provide through Jesus. That ultimate sacrifice was made by Christ himself at the cross at Calvary. He laid his perfect life down for us. Though we turned away from God, set ourselves against him in our sin, Jesus, God's son, came to us, became one of us, lived the perfect life for us, laid his life down for us to make purification for our sin. And three days later, he rose again and he ascended on high to the Father to sit down at his right hand, signifying the work that he was sent to do is finished. To tell us, die. It's finished. Folks, the ultimate sacrifice has been offered, the work is done. This is so important for you to know because there are many people in our world today who mistakenly believe that there is more to be done by us to be saved. They believe there is more work that needs to be added to the accomplished work of Christ for our salvation. Nothing can be further from the truth. Christ's work was sufficient. He alone made purification for our sin. And the only way for you to be forgiven of sin and made right with God is to place your faith and trust alone in the person and work of Christ alone. Have you made this decision? Listen, you can leave here today knowing that your sins have been atoned for, knowing that they have been covered. If you would place your faith alone in Christ alone. If you're here and you've not made that decision, I pray you would today. Let's pray.